You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me, returning from his travels of the last week, is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners are well and we've got a great interview today, have we not? We do indeed. Of course, um, coal and the future of coal has been the focus of many a story in the um, in the papers and on our website over the past month um, at Origin and AGL. And today we were delighted to be able to talk to Frank Calabria, the CEO of Origin Energy, um, for um, <laughs> pretty obvious reasons why. But anyway, we talked to him this, earlier on this afternoon, and this is what he had to say. Frank Calabria, thanks once again for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. A pleasure to be with you today, Giles and David. You announced just a few weeks ago the early closure of the Araring coal-fired generator. It's the biggest in the country, 2.88 gigawatts. Yeah. It was supposed to be closed in 2032. Now you fast-track that to 2025. Broadly, why and and and, and why time the announcement now? What, what's what's driven you to 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 make this announcement at this time? Yeah. Okay. Yes, so certainly from our perspective, it was really driven by our assessment of just the rapid influx of renewables. And as we looked forward, that would continue at a pace. Uh, We witnessed last year that it was 3,000 megawatts of rooftop solar on their own coming through. We know there's a New South Wales roadmap that's going to bring in 12 gigawatts of renewables between now and 2030. And certainly when we look at that, it challenges the economics of coal even faster than we would have anticipated several years ago. And that's what's brought forward our decision today to make the decision. There was no magic to the timing. We had engaged for a period of time with New South Wales government um, leading up to the decision. Uh, But outside of that, it was really the culmination of those discussions and and our belief that the market was going to transition faster uh, that led to the decision um, over recent weeks. One of the major reactions to the um, announcement has been quite predictably that this puts um, the reliability of the grid at risk. Why won't it? And I'm particularly interested in a presentation that you made uh, just recently and um, analysing this. And I'd just be interested if you can sort of discuss this idea of replacing baseload with um, sort of dispatchable capacity. People think, oh, where do you get 2.88 gigawatts that can run 24 hours a day from? Um, I was interested in a graph that you presented which talks about the ramping capacity of Iraring. That's the important bit to to be replaced. So maybe if – sorry, there's a couple of questions in there. No, no, that's okay. Yeah, why the lights won't go out and, um, and, and something about the capacity that needs to be replaced. That's right. So a very good question. Um, Historically, uh, dispatchable power plants have provided two things, the baseload energy in the system and secondly, what we call capacity. And capacity is essentially the power you need available at times of peak demand to be able to manage uh, the fluctuations of demand in the system. And today that's become a far more um, sophisticated set of capacities because we've got both very fast response required as well as capacity needed over several weeks 
to complement really both wind and solar energy that's coming into the system. So what's really happening over time is that the energy growth is coming through renewables and therefore the baseload energy plants are reducing the capacity they run at. And uh, as a result, we need a suite of technologies that better operates flexibly. And secondly, I think it provides a cleaner source of energy as part of that equation. So what we've uh, focused on, and we've seen this over time, is that Araring today runs um, at lower capacity factors, meaning it produces less energy today than it did several years ago in response to renewable energy coming in. We run it at an ability to um, flex it when we need the demand in a day and over time. And that's a very important risk management tool for us that we're protecting against those high prices to have that available. But what's happening is that, therefore, it's becoming a much higher fixed cost plant to operate. And whilst it's doing a good job to respond, that's going to get a harder and harder challenge. And there are better technologies able to be brought together to to achieve the same outcome. And therefore, as renewable energy through wind and solar grows, what we will have is um, peaking gas plants. They'll operate over days and weeks when you need that peak capacity to protect the system and to be reliable. And then there will be a combination of battery storage that moves energy around on the day that operates in conjunction renewables. There'll be hydro storage. And what we've also introduced is the ability to match supply and demand through a virtual power plant. You need the combination of all of those to come together to work. And I don't believe you will you would get that to work without, in our case, having three gigawatts of gas-fired capacity that protects against those events where you mm. need to run for long periods of time. So, so, you... so that, 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 that interests me, Frank, because, uh, you know, since you've been the chief executive or became chief executive of Origin in about 2016, I might have a year or so out, mm. uh, you know, we've been, seen this Araring closure. You've bought Octopus, which has tripled in value. Uh, yeah. You've sold off much of the rest of the domestic gas uh, production business and you've reduced your stake in APLNG and then there's been a strategy refresh but yeah. uh, which which has scorecard targets of focusing yeah. on customer solutions, uh, accelerating renewables and maximising cash flow. But uh, I'm, I, as an analyst, and, uh, and, and the share, share price has gone up over the past year, which is great, um, but I'm sort of still unclear as to what Origin's role in life is. Is, is, is it a, a, an electricity retailer? Is it a gas producer or a gas explorer? I mean, uh, that's the thing. I'm not quite sure what the proposition for an investor is going forward. Sure. And, and David, what I would say is that we are going through uh, a large transition, which um, we're essentially replacing certain sources of energy for our customers with other sources of energies, energy over time. That transition is one where I think we're experiencing today is going to also have price volatility over time. And it's also going to be at this point in time, it looks to be more disorderly. And as a result, when we're actually navigating through that transition, we need the robustness of the cash flows that are produced by the existing asset base. And in our case, the cash flows that are produced by APLNG in particular, but the domestic gas portfolio are valuable, uh, but they also enable us to, in addition to our balance sheet, 
to actually invest in to the new cleaner forms of energy and also into the customer solutions. I do believe that gas plays a role in that suite over time. It'd be fair to say that you've watched our portfolio shape through the announcement of a raring, the 10% sale of APLNG, uh, but you can see directionally where we've made those bets into Octopus and now announcing that we'll go further into renewables and storage, that we're mid-flight in terms of evolving that over time. Uh, but I do think that we've got a valuable source uh, of, uh, for origin that we are capturing or creating value through that that supply of, of supply of gas today. I do believe over time, by the way, David, that you will find that the solutions we provide to customers are going to be increasingly distributed. There will be hard to abate sectors that we'll need to move from gas into cleaner fuels. The economics of those are yet to emerge, as you know. But that's the direction we're heading in and we really feel that you've got to place that portfolio and shift it over time to create that value. So that's our proposition. That's, that's interesting because, in, you know, you've certainly done some things quite well, like the, the Loop Virtual Power Plant has, has already 200 megawatts and you've got a target of mm. two gigawatts. You've got Spike, yeah. which is a gamified response. But still, when I look at it uh, at the moment, uh, as it happens this year, at least, the, the whole retailing profit is only, um, you know, like the gas uh, APLNG is essentially nearly three times as big in profit terms. So Correct. it's quite hard to shift. Correct. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I guess the the immediate question is that Araring was producing about uh, uh, 14 terawatt hours or something, 16 terawatt hours of electricity, which is uh, uh, from its over 2,000 megawatts. And this provides you with a tremendous need and opportunity to replace that, uh, which you've already referred to. And, I'm, you know, there are different ways that that could be done by partnering with someone, yeah. uh, but by conducting endless tenders for with lots of different people or even by maybe becoming skilled and doing your own development. I, I'm just wondering which is more capital intensive but arguably more value creating in the very long run because you, you, you develop a skill, or at least in my opinion. Um, yeah. how, how are you thinking about that side of things? Yeah, so on the um, – if you think about it in terms of the energy to be brought into the portfolio, firstly – that will largely come through renewables. And uh, the way we think of it about that is that you're absolutely right. We believe there's a skill in the capturing of what I would call the development margin um, and the development um, that you can bring in, knowing you've got the customer base, both large customers and small customers to invest against. And so we certainly are participating in that development um, side of those things and also believe we can capture value through what I would say is the risk management margin associated with bringing that supply in. So we certainly will be wanting to play at that front end of that development. Uh, the ownership of the assets uh, when they're operating uh, would definitely, in our view, not warrant us to have them 100% on the balance sheet to enjoy the benefits of the operation, and we wouldn't be able to bring the lower cost of capital in doing so, but we'd expect to supplement those returns through um, what I would say, the development and building the skill, if, that, if that's what you want to describe, as well as the risk management skill or the margin we capture there. I think the key thing will be that depending on the nature of the partner and how that, call it the development and operational and uh, those components is shared, is, is probably one open for discussion in terms of how that gets shared, but that's certainly how 
we would want to participate as having that capability uh, that you've described because I think it'll be an important one. It feels to us too, David, that there's different skills associated with probably even solar versus wind versus even when you get to things like pumped hydro and then even battery storage. So um, probably think about those skills differently. As you know, developing a wind farm is, is a little different to developing a solar farm. And, and so there's, a, there's different paths to take along that way. But you're right. That's exactly how we think about it. Just on that, just as I'm handing back to Giles, um, do you, like AGL talks about their option portfolio of sites and stuff like that, uh, do you, mm. uh, how are you actually, do you have options yourself and development prospects in, in that? You know, in, in, uh... We do. Uh, we have a, uh, I think we'd have a smaller number of sites. We certainly have sites in um, early stage sites in New South Wales. We've got late stage site in Victoria. We've got um, more early stage, uh, stage sites both in um, in South Australia. So we have got several hundred megawatts at early and late stage and we've recently um, been working to close transactions on a couple of them we haven't publicly announced. So we're certainly on that path. It'd be fair to say our portfolio of sites is, is building all the day, but it's been one that's um, probably, you know, when we were constrained for capital had spent less effort and time on, but is now one we, we've put our efforts behind. It, um, just frankly, just on those little wind and, um, and, and solar projects, um, I noticed that um, in that last presentation, you also said that you're going to be doing shorter term PPAs, which is probably not great news for the project developers themselves. Um, but mm -hmm. is that to sort of avoid some of the issues that you had with your previous um, uh, PPAs, where you locked in very long term contracts, which proved in the end to be sort of over the market? Yeah, so I think the early stage PPAs that you're referencing were very much driven by a need to meet our obligations really under the renewable energy target. And you're right, it did, it did therefore in an effort to lower the cost of overall energy um, and at the same time get the benefit of the renewable certificates which actually have a front-end curve um, entering into PPAs that therefore have been against a reducing cost curve has obviously got a risk that's therefore worn by retailers, including ourselves. So that's certainly been the past. I think where the market's moving towards today is that uh, the, 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 the contracts that are underwriting these projects tend to be by large um, customers and they don't tend to write contracts as long. Uh, therefore, the contract duration has generally been sufficient enough to be able to get project financing away. But to your point, it's unlikely to be contracted out to the same extent historically, and that's partly risk management, part flexibility going into those. The mm -hmm. one benefit that we have, I think, when we think about that is that you've got um, both what might be, let's call it, they'll be underwritten by customer contracts, your own potential portfolio, or you'll be bidding them into, say, a New South Wales government scheme. The New South Wales scheme will have longer-dated contracts, but you would expect those to be um, through the consumer trustee and therefore um, may be attractive but might, um, might go to a lower cost of energy, but they'll be under those schemes. But I think it's a broader trend about risk management and the way the market might evolve over time that's really giving you that shorter duration and that tends to be the sweet spot right now. Can I just go back to the RAR enclosure? Um, are you, you're, I mean, from Origin's point of view, you're basically saying that the days of baseload power uh, are over. You're moving on. You're moving on to a completely different system. Yeah, we think the energy system, and it's been on a path, and I know that both you and David have commented on it, this path is, 
been coming for some time. I actually think it's been the, the, the pure underlying cost of the energy, to be clear, you know, the sort of the general baseload energy, I believe that we have relied less upon that over time every year with Araring. And one of the key considerations around our timing is that it also provided a risk management tool for capacity when you needed it. And therefore, it's been the cost of battery storage and other technologies that's actually had to come down so that we felt overall that there were choices in addition to building the VPP um, that's actually gone to our timing. But in our view, the energy system is moving away from um, moving away from coal quicker than ever, everyone, mm. everyone <laughs> than ever before. This seems to be a hard message to get across, though, because, you know, you still hear politicians, including the Prime Minister, talking about the need for baseload coal and baseload replacement for araring and things like that. Um, I'm just wondering, I mean, how difficult or how important is that for that message to get through? And then sort of as an adjunct to that question before handing back to David, um, the AEMO step change scenario, talking about all brown coal generator out by 2032, do you agree yeah. with that? Do you think that's too ambitious? Do you think it will probably happen anyway because of carbon budgets or whatever? Um, yeah, I think that's probably enough questions. Yeah, to so on that, no, no, that's fine, Joel. So on that travel, I think everyone understands we're moving to a world where coal's coming out of the system. I think where the debate centres around is, Will the system be able to handle coal coming out at the rate that now may represent, for example, a step change scenario? Uh, when I when we look at that at the moment, when we looked at Araring, uh, we were seeing that a lot was coming into the system. Okay, a lot of transmission is being built. Snowy two point zero is being built. Talawara is being built. Curry Curry is being built. And whilst it's you know, less reliable, you've also will have a lot more renewables in even on a derated basis that will play to that diversity of supply. In addition to that, we've got a New South Wales roadmap where obviously Araring's located in New South Wales. We've got 12 gigawatts of renewables coming in, two gigawatts of long duration storage that are stated aims that we tended between now and 2030. So I think the only question really now is as they're coming in and as coal's coming out, are we getting the balance right given there's a lot under construction? I don't think it's around the direction of travel. I think it's just all about that coming in. And I, I would just highlight that that in particular New South Wales mechanism that they've put the roadmap is based on a consumer trustee tendering when they want that to come in across a range of technologies. So I, I feel it's just all about the timing um, at that sort of time we're coming out. And, Frank, just on the timing, because, you know, these things are very tactical as well as strategic, I mean, my first simple question, do you think it's you, you've gone first? I mean, after Araring anyway, which is years ago. Um, and some other generators think that because they've got lower cost of coal, it's an advantage to be go last. Uh, but, I mean, from another perspective, maybe you get your pick of uh, how, how to reshape your portfolio first. I mean, do you think it's, you know, if you think about it from a competitive position, do you think where you are in, in the closure queue matters? Oh, I think it was good for us to go first from a strategic point of view. It creates a lot of white space, David, for both bringing energy and capacity in and also um, negotiating also how we might think about third-party contracts alongside building that. Uh, I personally believe that you don't want to be on the wrong side of that equation. The paradigm of the market will shift. I know it's uncertain. We're seeing very high commodity prices today that are driving a particular dynamic, but I've got no doubt in my mind in the future 
this market will be dominated by low short-run marginal cost renewable energy that will be moving in and out in a day and you want a very flexible portfolio of capacity that can respond instantaneously, including things like demand response as well as batteries. So I personally believe that it's uh, you want to be on you want to be moving earlier and that's about positioning our portfolio because uh, I can genuinely see that being a more efficient um, set of assets, uh, less capitally intensive, less fixed cost and better designed to work together than, than having coal stay in there longer at a very high fixed cost running as a peak or an intermediate asset. I, I, I think I agree with that, but there are obviously arguments that others would put that are different, but that, that, that's, that investors will work that out, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think they will. And, I mean, you're seeing that play out today, David, and, and, and I'm, I'm not the first, I'm not, they, would, they may argue that they've got low short or marginal costs can survive longer and all those things, and that's, and that's entirely up to them make assessments. I think it's interesting you see that that debate's playing out as it relates to, to even the Brookfield bid versus demerger but you know i'm not suggesting there's one right answer our our view is that the market's moving faster and you want to be moving your portfolio more quickly and i think there's a real opportunity yeah, um, yeah. to capture you, value yeah. you want to be just in front of the curve not correct not, not too far in front or too far correct. behind yeah yeah i um, know you know this as well david you're watching it you know we're seeing wholesale prices they will be volatile they'll move around but you know that it will travel along at some point and then what will wake up and go, gee, what happened to that? And all of a sudden we've now got an enormous supply sitting in there and I just feel that you've got to be get, – the timing will be um, delicate, but nevertheless you want that agility to be able to respond and to use yeah. your expression, be just in front of that, <laughs> just yeah, in that, front of that. that look, I, I, I've got two more questions before I head back to Giles, and one, but one of them is on prices, which have jumped up substantially mm. since the Araring closure was announced, mm. but they've jumped up in front of her. I mean, I, we haven't asked about the capacity utilisation of Araring prior mm. to the formal closure, but uh, I also think the coal prices have been at levels that, uh, uh, you know, would have had you laughed at uh, or worse if you and the gas prices, if you talked about them a year or two ago. Uh, what, have you got any comment on say, current prices in New South Wales up around one hundred dollars for the for the next couple of years? Uh, yeah, well, the, I think the, the forward price for electricity is directly correlated to that um, cost of coal um, because the coal cost. There are more than one power station that are all subject to those coal costs coming into the market and obviously the higher gas price there, there's no doubt in my mind they're all related and somewhat to the outages that were experienced in Queensland given the connectivity between the Queensland and New South Wales markets but largely that fuel cost. I think the reason you can see that is if you went to Victoria and South Australia, they're connecting but they're not connected at this point in time to the New South Wales and Queensland markets so they're directly related to be very clear, it's not through a high demand scenario um, that's driven by it. It's 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 directly linked to those two. Uh, so I think that that's the best um, best view of what's forming those prices right today. Is yeah, is it's, those it's funny if you look at it. At, at- Twenty three, you've got a fifty dollar price in Victoria for the for the year forecast, Correct. and a hundred dollars in New South Wales, which is crazy. But I just wanted to come back to your. Yeah. Core retailing business. If I look at yeah. Octopus, which you know I'm sure you've studied way way more than I have, and which has tripled yeah. in value since you had it, 
they only sell essentially electricity and they as far as i can understand they only sell renewable electricity you uh, you've got a business here in australia which is retailing gas uh, as well as uh, retailing electricity and the electricity comes from a variety of sources which doesn't matter in the electrons but it might matter in the marketing and you're also trying to expand your product range with broadband and stuff. I'm just wondering, you know, uh, obviously Octopus is very, very successful, how you reconcile the strategy that you're pursuing with the strategy of them. Yeah, sure. Firstly, Octopus sells electricity and natural gas to customers. And whilst it's investing in renewable energy supply, it's been a buyer of energy from the wholesale markets um, historically, but there's no doubt that it's moving the source of its electricity more towards integrating into the renewable model very consistent with us. In fact, it just bought the management rights to your point of having the capability of developing more renewable assets into its retail load. But it is, in fact, a retailer of both electricity and gas today. It has done, though, a very good job, in my view, David, when you come to back to your analyst views of how does it create value and therefore how does it position itself in the future. Its value proposition has been very much around initially that it had to provide very good value for money and be the best customer experience. So that's what they drove. There's no doubt in my mind, though, that they are positioning that business that's going to move it away and have made commitments as such that they'll be increasingly moving to an electrified world and they'll, they've invested in technology like heat pumps and others. So their strategy is very clear to move away from it, but they are a broader retailer today. So I do reconcile with them a couple of things. The lowest cost to serve in the market, in a market that doesn't have the scarcity of generation like we do in Australia is imperative, but you have to also do that a great customer experience. And therefore, they've been able to do that to grow that market share. Um, in a challenging, and as a challenger in the market, they've actually been able to scale that they're very good risk managers of the commodity, which means they've survived over the winter circumstances and they've emerged to be number four or number five. But they are now investing in technology and renewables that's enabling them to vertically integrate in a fashion that you and I have just talked about we want to take origin. They have a gigawatt on their Crack and Flex, which is their own VPP. They offer it to other third parties and some very um, broader companies, which has given them that scale. So we have very much a common vision about where this business goes to. Uh, but you're absolutely right that they don't start from an incumbency position and therefore they're able to pivot from that um, from that mindset. And I'd expect you to see them, they'll make strong commitments on a decarbonisation front, but you'll see that evolve over time. So I do reconcile that in my mind in that respect. Uh, but I do think the one thing we admire is their ability to continue to move and evolve its product and services that are going to be capturing the front end of that uh, marketplace opportunity, like EVs as an example, bringing new products in to do that. There are so many different sort of changing technologies. Um, Frank, um, do, you have, do you feel like you've got a handle on what the business model of the future is? Because it's going to change a lot from what it has been. Yeah, it's going to change a lot. I've got, I certainly have the view that when you look at Origin, and I really respect David's comments because we've been an integrated company and therefore you're seeing where we're placing bets but what we still hold, and you could see that that's different to what it was a year ago or two years ago. Um, and I certainly feel that we're in a business that's going to move towards the customer, moving along the value chain to the customer. The relationship 
between the customer and the supply side with distributed assets is going to become much more closely linked. And the best example for that is that the virtual power plant captures both wholesale and customer value, but you only get the benefit of that wholesale value. And I mean that by moving electrons around and having it available to act as capacity for short periods of time by being really good with the customer experience. And therefore, your ability to capture margin over time is going to be through your ability to be a good product uh, retailer that captures that, um, what I would say, the customer value, and that you will be capturing value through the orchestration and management of a far greater set of assets on the supply side, including third-party capital that would make that on a more efficient basis. Um, So I think that model, in our view, is where it evolves over time and some of the new technologies will move that towards further electrification, most notably vehicles, but I think heat load over time and heat pumps will become a feature of uh, where the market goes. Yeah, so that's that's where we think it's going. Um, In the meantime, I think that there's a lot of value, and David's absolutely right, we think there's a lot of value in our gas business as we go through that transition um, in order to help us fund and provide a proposition that shareholders can see the benefits of that new model emerging while we have that existing source of value for them. Yeah, I'd like to get back to the gas business later on, but just on the two gigawatt uh, virtual power plant, how is that going to work? Are you looking to sort of orchestrate, I think the the language is now, sort of rooftop solar, local demand management, battery storage and um, and electric vehicles? Is that the plan? And um, two gigawatts, that sounds like um, quite quite ambitious. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it is ambitious, but it, it, where it emanates from is really... So the technology is all about the fact that you can orchestrate a range of assets that you've just described and manage, therefore, the supply and demand on a real-time basis. And what that does is that will integrate through to the Kraken platform as well. So you could also build the customers, develop the products, and that'll be a seamless customer experience, and that's where you'll get the retail deeper engagement and benefit over time. If you looked at the source of those megawatts, though, and you really looked at the proliferation of what will occur into the market, I think it can be way more ambitious than that. But I know we've got to actually demonstrate its growth. Uh, We certainly have invested in the technology and that's in place now and we're doing that. But those assets are, you know, you think about what would be the scale of behind-the-meter batteries, behind-the-meter solar uh, what would also be demand response of key assets for business customers, and we don't have huge megawatts associated with that, as well as controlled hot water load, for example, alongside even the demand response for Spike, which is you know seventy thousand active customers. You are you've got quite a large and community batteries. You've got quite a large set of assets that we believe are going to come into the energy system, and um, it's our job to be able to therefore capture all of those and then capture that benefit but also share that benefit and a better customer experience to actually continue to grow it. That's how that will work. And clearly vehicles coming in would be another source of batteries into the system as well. You've talked about managing 5,000 vehicles by 2025. What exactly do you mean by that? Uh, What we really mean is that the adoption of um, uh, vehicles right now and by the uh, where our focus has been right now is really through Um, a fleet through to our business customers because that's where the emerging demand is. We have a partnership with Custom Fleet. And so that's one of the sources of the growth of that. And what we're also, so large corporates would be the starting point. What we're also seeing, though, is an increasing amount of interest also through um, 
what we would even call our community energy service business or embedded networks and others where they want that to be part of the offering as well. But we think the early adoption initially will come through fleets at that scale and then there will be consumer adoption more broadly. But that's the, uh, it's, the, it's the fleet business that will be the largest source of vehicles. And at the same time, we're pursuing smart charging. Uh, we're not seeing ourselves as rolling out infrastructure across freeways, but we do believe investing and, and building capability around smart charging solutions and even installing charging solutions in those property and then entering into longer-term deals is, uh, is the way that will emerge. We haven't talked about Origin Zero, which is the kind of wholesale mm. equivalent of, uh, yeah. of uh, Spike and, uh, and Loop and I guess, uh, you know, and, and remembering that always that residential consumption is only about uh, – uh, uh, thirty or forty percent, but I guess it might be quite a lot of production as well. So, yeah. Uh, but I just wanted quickly, I, I, probably my last question because we've gone a good while, but Charles probably have a couple more is just yeah. to ask about the Beetaloo and the Northern Territory because, you know, it does stand as a bit of an outlier in terms of everything that we've been talking about today so far. Yes, so I assume the question's on Beetaloo, not zero, so happy to go to Beetaloo. And look, you're right, we're sitting with an exploration and appraisal of a very large gas asset, and we've been very much focused about um, essentially uh, developing or at least doing our exploration under our permit commitments and to create value through those. But clearly any development that we would need to undertake would need to be consistent with our decarbonisation goals. So I, I really would be very clear about that. That would mean we would need to work on both scope one, two and three emissions. So I'm not suggesting that we are, uh, we're, we're, we're certainly pursuing a strategy that's inconsistent with our overall goals, but any development would need to, which by the way is some way away given the exploration of where we're at. And in the meantime, we're in the midst of a, a farm down proposal right, you know, process right now. And our objective is to try and create that value um, farm down uh, therefore help with a cash commitment for us to continue to actually see how we might um, bring value to that asset. But you're right about the development. You know, the development needs to exist in a world where we would need to weigh that in terms of the role of gas, and we still think gas plays an important role in the energy transition, but the development would need to um, be aligned with our commitments and, and, and would need to stand the scrutiny of that. Yeah, because I guess most people would, um, or many commentators and most environment groups sort of think about 1.5 degree scenario, and, and you're about yeah. to release a 1.5 degree scenario for yeah. your own business by the end of the year. Um, is right. just not compatible with something like Beetaloo. Yeah, so I think if you were looking at the 1.5 degree scenario, and we're, we're yet to release that, but we're, we're very serious about having commitments that achieve that, and we'll be bringing 2030 commitments associated with that. Uh, we recognise that we'll be doing that and, 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 and people will assess and scrutinise that uh, and, and certainly um, you, you should do that when we bring that to shareholders and to the public more broadly later this year. But that's, that's um, and we're cognisant of all those things need to stack up. Yeah. I've got two more questions. One's just about the um, situation in Europe, the uh, Ukraine war, uh, the invasion there. Uh, how does this and, and, and the rise in commodity prices and things like this um, I guess you have to assume, sort of make an assumption about whether this is short-term or long-term, but what does this do mm. to your, your plans? Oh, yes. Yeah, so it's, we are in extraordinary times. Um, and I think one of the key things is that if we were just coming out of a pandemic and I think, you know, it'd be, we were coming out of a subdued demand environment and probably where supply 
didn't get invested as much, I think, or there would potentially, you know, I think people look back and say, was there underinvestment as it rebound out? And before you even digesting that supply-demand balance in Europe, what's happened with Europe and the, the tragic circumstances there is that it's actually, I think, you know, sent it right into a, an energy imbalance that you would describe as an energy crisis, really, you know, really right now. It is hard to predict the duration of all of that. But what that's meant is that I think what we're seeing is that I think in the short or the near term, you're going to continue to see high and volatile prices emerging. I can't tell you the exact shape of that. I am of the view, though, that the direction is clear towards decarbonisation. That's what our belief sits behind. Um, There's no doubt we're digesting at the moment what's the inflationary pressure on the world. Not only is it driving high prices in our core commodity markets, it's also driving input costs into batteries through lithium and we're going to obviously, it appears to be in, in an interest rate rising world. So from our perspective, the direction doesn't change. Uh, it'll go to the timing of decisions, but I've articulated where we think we position. I don't I don't think it changes anything that other than getting uh, back to David's comments, be just at the at the front end in front of the curve in terms of making our calls. But it's certainly going to make it less certain over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months with, you know, it's just, it really is less certain. I, 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 I don't want to interrupt uh, Giles's question and I won't. It, so I'll just make an observation that, in fact, one of the reasons for going with the energy vendor, as it was in Germany, was to reduce the uh, dependence or the, the exposure to, to uh, volatile commodity prices like oil and uh, coal and gas and uh, you know, uh, the obvious thing in Europe is that uh, Germany in particular has become too dependent on one one source of supply, uh, which is volatile. And, and uh, you know, in Australia's case, I mean, you know, oil is a, is a volat- is something we could get away from a lot by going to uh, having a more aggressive electric vehicle policy, assuming there were any electric vehicles to be bought. But sorry, back to you, Charles. Yeah, so I might, it's a good point, David, because you, you look at what's happened and therefore their exit from nuclear and therefore the dependence on the single source of gas, I think is a reminder that I think a lot of the Europe, but more broadly, I think you're going to find um, increasingly people focused on their energy security and where's that supply coming from and therefore does this in fact accelerate transition? But people are still going to have to navigate that short to near term, which is is hard to escape. But you're, you're right that there's, in our view, we think... Um, there is an opportunity for us to continue to advance our business and our strategy is very much focused on the one that is linked to decarbonisation and capturing those opportunities that you've described. Frank, my last question, um, I can't believe we've had all this um, time and haven't actually sort of deep dived into battery storage, so that's going to have to be yeah. my last question. Um, you've talked about batteries, um, sort of, you know, reference them. In your recent presentation, you seem to be talking about the multiple market opportunities that were opening up for batteries, you know, sort of different things that they could do. You talked about sort of expanding to four hours of storage, which would be a great thing. Um, sort of, how are you thinking about storage? Do you think batteries can possibly go longer than four hours storage? Are you still thinking about pumped hydro i know you looked at um, an expansion of Shoalhaven, but sort of um, put the hold on that or maybe even cancel it completely because of the costs um, how do you think this storage this sort of uh, replacement capacity is going to be playing out yeah. yeah so battery storage has three sources of revenue that we can see today it um it certainly has the ability to what i would say move electrons between 
where there's an abundance to a scarcity within a day, it actually provides frequency control and ancillary services. And, and then thirdly, it represents um, a form of capacity, albeit at the shorter level, so it's not the same as having a dispatchable plant that can run forever, but on a particular rated basis, it acts as capacity that you know forms part of it. And those three value streams um, have meant that we believed until very, very recently, and we gave indications to our investors, we were seeing those prices come down very low. And I did quote on the investor day, we were seeing them come as low as $400 a kilowatt hour. But the economics of market revenues, can I say, was very much uh, at this point in time, only economic at that two hours. Uh, the one thing that's thrown that a little bit in just recent weeks is just the inflationary pressures being quite pronounced with lithium and other input costs that, that you wouldn't get that $400 a kilowatt hour today. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do believe that in I do believe in the technology learning cost curve and that there will continue to be more effective over time and that enables the strength of those batteries is that they can be also improved modular so you can get the extra hours when you want to do that um, over time as that cost comes down. And so we're believers in that coming down. It's just right now, you, it, you know, in a world where we're going to see higher cost of capital and and certainly some of those input costs that just feels like, you know, we just to recalibrate at the same time we're seeing very higher energy prices. But we're believers in the fact that they very much are the two hours. They may move to four hours soon. Uh, there will be two things, though. There will be governments underwriting them, like on the New South Wales roadmap. When you come to Shoalhaven, the costs have and the drilling costs were expensive. Uh, there's a role for that eight-hour you know, storage capacity. Um, that's an attractive, longer-duration storage market. And, uh, and we certainly are advancing our plans because we think it may be a good opportunity as part of the, the New South Wales government's roadmap for that long-duration storage. We think it's a great a great opportunity in the context of what's required in the system, but that's where our priority for that asset will be. Thanks very much, Frank. Uh, you've been very generous with your time and uh, you know you're the biggest, Origin is the biggest uh, electricity retailer, 27% market share in, in, in the country. Um, uh, uh, you're exposed to the LNG market, which will give uh, Angus Taylor a lot of joy, I'm sure. I don't know if he's a shareholder. Uh, um, but uh, it's it's a terrific uh, opportunity and and challenge to be leading Origin uh, for, for the next few years. It certainly is, and it's an exciting time. And um, I think just leading through this transition is just a tremendous opportunity for us right now. And feel very excited um, about navigating it, and feel we've got lots of capabilities, assets, and we'll build some new ones along the way, David, to continue to create value. So, thanks very much, Giles and David. It's been a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. And that was um, Frank Calabria, the CEO of Origin Energy. Um, David, I feel like we could have talked for a long time further. There's a few things we didn't really get into, such as green hydrogen and um, Origin's take on some of the energy market reforms, which is still sort of sitting before the ESB and things like that. But um, what was your major take of this? It's, uh, I mean, it's sort of Origin seems to have made a decision to move. I, um, I guess they're giving themselves the best shot. Well, uh, that's my view. Araring um, was more exposed to the rise in coal prices in New South Wales than most of the other generators, so that, that contributes as well. But as he says, it's a fixed cost and lower volumes and you know, when I look at AGL's uh, plants, it's the it's the volume drop off I expect 
in the latter years that that will probably drive their decision making as well. Mm. Uh, I have to say though, it, you know, that we talk, but you know, for the participants in the market, consumers and producers, the reality of what's going on is that, as as we said in the podcast, power prices in New South Wales and Queensland are sitting up around a hundred dollars. You know, a terrific thirty or forty dollar rise. Uh, for the next two two years, over what they what expectations were a year ago, and they're solidly down in the fifty dollar mark you know, in Victoria. So so you know that's really it's you know that's that's hundreds of it's billions of dollars of difference uh, that's been paid, and so it, it's pretty important. It is pretty important, yeah. Um, just a couple of other things sort of happening in the general market itself. Um, we did have a quick story on AEMO um, this week sort of defending its um, co-retirement forecast, particularly in light of the ISP, which we touched on in the discussion with um, Frank Calabria. Um, I think the regulator has sort of queried it or at least asked for more information. We had Scott Morrison this week sort of keep on insisting as the coalition seems to be their policy now, let's have, um, let's run these things into the ground. Um, let's even have more if they're viable. Well, we know they're not viable and we know they can't really be run into the ground. Um, seems to be a bit of a disconnect somewhere, but it's interesting that AEMA came out with their defense, um, pointing out that one, as fact, Calabria has pointed out in the decision-making with Iraring, um, they don't make economic sense anymore. And secondly, the step change is also guided by the fact that we're going to have to take climate change seriously. Um, we're going to need a 1.5 degree um, trajectory um, or 2 degree at the very at the very least. And um, that's going to mean most of these other things exiting the system. I guess um, it's going to be interesting to see um, how things like Bitterloo Basin actually fit into that. And it was interesting that um, Frank Calabria was not um, dogmatic about that. He said, well, we'll have to look at it and study it at the time. So, for, so uh, you know, it's a journey for Origin. They're moving from one place to another, and I don't know that we can yet see exactly where they're going to end up, but uh, th there is steady progress, significant progress, and I suspect that both investors and, and management will be very much emboldened by... Uh, the success of the octopus investment, you know, you need to have a few wins to, to feel that you're doing the right thing. And they sold 10% of APLNG, uh, you know, just before gas prices have gone rocketing up. And so there's no doubt that for a year or two, uh, that's going to cost uh, shareholders in opportunity cost, but the share price has gone up anyway. So that, that, that's on the uh, uh, on the one side. If we look forward, Giles, I think the thing that's coming up is the Energy Security Board uh, and what it's going to do about procuring capacity, which uh, seems to still be all the rage. Yes, well, look, we did actually have a discussion with Frank um, once the recording finished about capacity markets, and um, it was interesting. His take was that basically he was in favour, but not ones that would actually sort of keep coal, not ones designed to keep coal generators in the system, ones that would be sort of designed to sort of encourage new capacity because I think his argument was, if I got it right, David, was it's basically you either have a mechanism for it or you're basically just sort of leaving it to the states and uh, we can't really rely any longer. Well, his view was that politicians were not going to tolerate having this extreme volatile pricing, so they would find a capacity mechanism of some sort easier to handle. Um, any views no, on that? For politicians, energy security, like keeping the lights on, is first, second or th and third priority. They can put up with high prices for a while if they know the lights are going to stay on. But when, when you face physical the potential physical shortages, that's the... Uh, that's that's the thing that really keeps people awake at night. Now, 
this is the thing about Araring closing that illustrate, and the same thing in Europe we've already talked about, but it, it has to be stressed time and time again and that you need to build the new capacity first, whether it's the transmission or the dispatchable power or the actual bulk energy. It has to be built ahead of the old stuff closing. And that's where I think uh, the early closure of Araring is going to catch people out because New South Wales isn't going to have built the quite the amount of capacity it needs, uh, at least not on present intentions. And it's where the federal government has just does such a poor job, you know, in every way, but it's irrelevant, you know. I mean, that's the point really about what Scott Morrison's saying. He's not saying anything. He's not contributing to the debate. Angus Taylor is not contributing to the debate. They're just not putting anything in any way, shape or form. All they do is stand on the sale sidelines and say we've got to have enough dispatchable power it's mm. it's a useless contribution it just it's meaningless well it's useless but it's also not meaningless because it does actually sort of erect a sort of a policy bollard for the lack of any policy um so it does erect sort of bollards in, in in the way of the transition because if we had a federal government that kind of embraced this then we'd kind of feel that we were moving forward but anyway um there'll no doubt there'll be more discussions on that um david it was a great interview with frank and thank you very much for frank collaborator for joining us um if you missed the interviews we've had recently we've had a great run of um, interviews mike cannon brooks from atlassian uh, snowy hydro's gordon Weimer, um, Victorian Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio last week. We've got a fantastic interview already in the can for next week um, on Fortescue's plans. Um, there's the Chris Bowen interview that we did on the Driven podcast with his um, new um, Tesla and EV policies. And we also got the global um, pro product development um, boss from SMA, the big inverter company um, on the Solar Insiders podcast. So a lot to listen to. Um, but thanks everyone out there for listening. Thanks to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen, and we'll be back again. And we know it's going to be a great podcast because we've already done the interview next week, and we look forward to bringing you that. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimizes residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.